Growing Pains, i.e. Parenting Podcast, in association with Safe Food, helping you make better food choices. Hi, I'm Irene Feehan and welcome to Growing Pains, the Irish Examiner's parenting podcast series in association with Safe Food. With me today is child psychotherapist Dr. Coleman Nocter, who writes a column for our IE Parenting section, published every Tuesday and online. Coleman is also the author of the best-selling book, The 427 Zone. It was published earlier this year. For the next 20 minutes, we'll be talking about challenging behaviour, managing toddler tantrums and adolescent hostility. Thank you for coming to us today, Coleman. You're very welcome. Thank you very much. So let's start with toddlers. Most of us have been there. You're in the shops and your child is having a meltdown. So what's going on for your child? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the terrible twos and the you know the teenagers and all of these sort of phrases that we have, they explain the kind of irrationality of the toddler. Um, and sometimes it can feel like when you're in a shop or something that they almost know that they have you in a moment of weakness. That uh, that that they're that, but the reality is they're not as cognitively sharp as that. What's happening in that moment is that children have a lot of big feelings and lots of big behaviours, um, but they have very little cognition which is the thinking piece. So we all, as human beings, we feel, we think and we do. Uh, When you're very small, you have lots of feelings, lots of doing, not so much thinking. So the idea is, I have a feeling, I have to express it. And whether that's anger or joy or... And so children of that age are prone to kind of over-the-top reactions. You've seen how they get so much joy out of a cardboard box or something like that. So that overreaction is equally visible in negative experiences. So if you tell them in the shop that they can't have a packet of chocolate or whatever it might be, they'll have an overreaction. So the worst thing that we can try and do in that situation is negotiate or try and uh, rationalize with a toddler because they haven't got that cognitive capacity to be able to do that. So you're trying to manage behavior. And that's where we engage in all kinds of things like bribery and, you know, if you stop, I'll do this. If you stop. Um, sometimes anger as well. Sometimes anger and behavior meeting behavior. Um, mm. But in the case of the toddler, it is because there is no words. They have no language to express to you how they are feeling. So their behavior is the only way that they can get their point across and they will get it across as vehemently or as severely as possible, especially if they think you're not listening. Um, so the tantrum in the shop is very much that. It is, I am so angry and distraught that I'm not getting what I want. Um, And so as much as you're embarrassed as a parent, you know, I think it has happened to most of us. I think most people who are in the vicinity have been, who are parents themselves will have an understanding of that. Um, But it is, it's again, it's trying to understand that this is happening because of an absence of something and it's not a conscious uh, attempt to unnerve you or to make your day any more difficult. And then on the other end, you have teenage blowouts where they seem to just literally blow a gasket sometimes, almost blow a gasket. Yeah. And again, similar processes at play there in terms of the emotions are really high um, and the language, maybe the cognition is there, but the language isn't, you know, again, it's very difficult for a 13 year old to express, I'm feeling a little bit tired. I might take five minutes here instead. 
I'm going to get overtired. I'm going to get cranky. I'm going to get irritable or I'm going to overreact or or ha- show some sort of a blowout meltdown type reaction. Um, and again, in the as the adult in the room, you have to become the thinking part. So you're trying to create a connection between the emotion and the behavior and trying to say, I think you're acting this way because you're feeling this. And almost by developing that sense of that inner, of our voice, trying to get them to connect the two, we hope that they over time internalize that for themselves. And they can then piece together that when I feel like this, this is sometimes how I act and how can I make that different or how can I make that better? But the absence of language is really difficult. It is, you know, one of the main reasons why we have misbehavior throughout all of childhood is that I don't have the words to express how I feel or I don't have the words to communicate to you how difficult I'm finding this experience. So um, a distressed child is somebody who's trying to communicate something but isn't able to do it. And so it may be a case of them being unable to manage a situation rather than unwilling. And again, flicking your own lens to understand it from that behavior automatically makes you better able to manage it. And you talk about then being aware of what your child can manage. So rather than having very high expectations of them, to say this is all that they're able to cope with at the moment. Yeah, and I I think I I oftentimes have parents come to me and say, you know, we tried something like, say a child is bedwetting or, you know, is having experience and they tried to bring in some sort of a reward chart. So they'll say to the child, if you can stay dry for five nights, we will get you a ticket to the movies or something. That's far too big an expectation for a child who's never stayed dry for one night. Five nights is far too, you know, it's a far too ambitious and unreasonable request. Oftentimes what you need to do in that situation is have these small, achievable, quick win goals so that the child gets this kind of almost experience of confidence building, that they have these quick wins, they have these successes and build them up towards that. So if you want your child to, you know, manage a a, a nighttime routine that they're struggling with, maybe it's just about rewarding them for attempting to brush their teeth, nothing else, and then building up to brushing your teeth, putting on your pyjamas and then building up. So what you're doing is you're meeting the child where they're at, at a level that they can understand. And what you're trying to do is create momentum and buy-in into that process. And oftentimes as parents, we expect far too much of our children. We want to make these massive changes all together, all at once, which the child, whether it be the teenager or the toddler, isn't able to understand, isn't able to comprehend. And what we're asking is too difficult. That will result in them failing to meet our expectations and leave us feeling that they didn't try hard enough or that they're not able or even feeling that we're a bad parent because we were able to do it. So oftentimes it's not what did you do to help that, but how did you do it? And fine tuning the the intervention to meet the needs of where that child is developmentally. So really closely tuning into your child. And tuning into mm. what they're capable of managing. You know, mm. a child who, you know, who can't sit still or is struggling to do that. It's about even setting them tiny targets, like 30 seconds, a minute, and just rewarding them for that management of that small time rather than saying, you know, you're going to your auntie's wedding and I accept you to sit for the church for an hour. You know, that just wouldn't be reasonable. And And again, that's about seeing the world through the lens of the child will always help you to understand them. And then if you're dealing with an older teenage child, your expectations will be higher. So how do you manage them and the level they're at? And again, I think, you know, sometimes we see these physiological beings who seem very capable, seem very adult, seem very mature. um, But 
the maturity level from an emotional point of view is never going to be at that level. You know, it's not, it's never going to match. And children and young people, their trajectories develop at all different paces. So mm. someone who might be physiologically quite impressive, cognitively might not be there, emotionally might certainly not be there. And what we find is, you know, the emotional issues around trying to communicate through a struggle or through uh, trying to communicate an emotional distress through words can be really difficult. So it's easier to slam a door or it's easier to get cross or it's easier to, um, you know, refuse to go out or refuse to clean your room or whatever the case may be. Uh, and we have to, again, interpret that behavior as having meaning and see what that means and try and look into it a little bit mm. rather than being overly judgmental of it. And we're back to that negotiation then, particularly with your teenagers teaching them about, about how you compromise, how you work it out. So it's not just I'm not going to do it and slam the door. And again, it's you being that thinking piece. So you're saying this is a behaviour that I see. This is the emotion I think you're feeling. Can we try and make sense of connecting that? And what might it be that you're feeling at the moment that's causing you to have a short temper, to be cross, to be angry, to be hostile? And while we can acknowledge the shortcomings of say, adolescent puberty or toddler frustration, that doesn't always mean that we condone the behavior. We can, I can say to my teenager, I understand that you're getting cross because you're going through something in your life at the moment that's really difficult and you haven't got that. But I don't want you swearing at me. I don't want you to be violent. I don't want you to be aggressive towards furniture or hurt your brother or sister. So you can still have expectations while understanding the emotional expression and the need for that to be you can condone the emotion um, but condemn the action in sure. that way. So there, we're, we're, we're earlier talking about boundaries as well. For sure. And, mm. and a boundary of at home is something that is not you know established over one conversation. It's established over time. And you say, well, in this house, we don't swear at each other and we don't allow that. And no matter how upset somebody is, we can still hold those boundaries. You can still have empathy for some, what someone's going through, but not have to kind of pass on how they're managing it. Some kids, uh, young and older, can employ the squeaky wheel syndrome. So they just keep saying, coming back to you, back to you. They want something that just can't let up. And it can be easy when you're under pressure to say, oh, for God's sake, there, take it. You can have it or I give in. Uh, how, how do parents manage that? It's interesting because the squeaky wheel syndrome is kind of that idea that the squeaky wheel is the only one we oil, you know, so if there's four siblings in a house and three are just powering on nicely. We tend to leave them be. And if you have a slow puncture, when you come out of your house, the first wheel you'll check is the one that's giving you the problem. So children cotton on to this very quickly that, you know, if uh, I need to be difficult to be seen um, mm. or this is what gets me seen. And and what is really important for, for children and teenagers is that idea of being visible. And I think as parents, we need to understand that, you know, our children grow up in attention economy. So everyone's vying for the attention. Some people will get attention by being impressive, being good. Some people will get uh, attention by being difficult and being loud. And, you know, what we're doing is we associate with each child. This is how you get my attention. So if you're troublesome, you'll get attention. If you're good, you won't get any attention. You know, so the idea of we almost set the template for that. Um, and so squeaky wheel is an unfortunate dynamic where the child sees I have to be a problem in order to be seen within this uh, dynamic or within this family. And so what you have is more and more troublesome behavior as a means of attracting your attention. What about the situation where 
a child is regarded as spoilt because they're acting out and not actually seeing what's needed, which is their parents' attention. And you mentioned about Donald Winnicott talking about the mother holds the child in her gaze. So yes, that yes. need to really look to see what's happening behind the behaviour. That's a, yeah, that's how Winnicott uses that expression to kind of ex- express how the importance of visibility. So where there is no language between the infant and the ch- and the parent, the eyes hold their gaze. And we can see the important, uh, importance of the gaze of the other right through our lives. And if you even go into the idea of social media and being seen and being looked at and being looked, think about language, looked after, watched over. These ideas of attracting your attention visibly through, through visuals is really important. And so the idea that a child feels looked after or watched over is inherently part of their own ability to manage their own anxiety. So if you think about one child who goes to the park and they feel comfortable in their own skin, they have a secure attachment, they'll run off and they'll play and intermittently they might look back to see that mom is there. Where uh, the child who's more anxious is the one who kind of has to be prized from your leg. They're constantly looking back there and they don't have a belief that you will hold them in mind, you know, almost that you have to be looking at me or I have to be able to see you. And their reliance on that becomes almost the that determines their behavior, the need to be seen. And oftentimes if and you'll see it if in a small child, if you have if your mom or your dad and, and you have visitors over, your child will come up to you 10, 15 times showing you pictures or telling you that they're thirsty or requesting a drink. And it's almost like they have to vie for your attention in that moment because it's been distracted elsewhere. And so oftentimes what we do is we only give the child our gaze when they need it or yes. when they demand it or yes. when they request it. Mm. And we miss some of the simple requests around, look at me. Mm. And you ha- you talk about attention seeking versus relationship seeking. Yeah, I think we have a kind of an unfortunate real li- association between attention seeking behavior as a bad thing. I mean, we, and that's a, maybe it's, it's our turn in language that we see attention seeking as some sort of manipulation of us and that it's attention that's not warranted. Every one of us is attention seeking. We all seek the attention of others. And what we're trying to do by attracting someone's attention is to engage them in a relationship, engage them in a relationship of, do you care about me? Am I important to you? Am I enough to you? What makes you tick? What do I make you happy? Do I make you sad? And when you're trying to get that or trying to create that relationship, you need the attention of the other. Yes. So it doesn't happen. In isolation. No, absolutely not. I mean, again, there has to be a stimulus or a catalyst in order to get your attention. So uh, and I've seen lots of children who will be kind of troublesome and difficult and maybe they'll have a big argument and row, but maybe it'll end in a hug or uh, coming together or, you know, and almost they will almost be able to see over time that the cause of the argument was to get the hug. You know, almost it's the only way that I can achieve that is by and I'm not attention seeking, I'm relationship seeking. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to and some children will need more reassurance of your presence, of your care, of your nurturance than others. Others will be just because of temperament. They might be Mm. perfectly comfortable with the fact that you will keep them in mind. Other children may need more evidence and proof of that. And oftentimes that proof is something visual and it is about you sitting in front of me and giving me your time. Uh, And the only way that I can get that time sometimes is misbehavior. Mm. And so 
I suppose it's so easy to label that kind of that attention what we would call attention seeking behaviour as being spoilt and the child is getting too much attention. But in fact, it's the attention that will actually resolve the issue. Yeah, again, I think if we see the attention as the currency, then we need to almost cut it off at the pass. You know, so the idea of if I misbehave to get your attention, maybe I could give the attention prior to the misbehavior. So to give you an example of, you know, if you have two children who two siblings who have oftentimes clash and they're sitting together watching a cartoon or something in the sitting room. Oftentimes what we'll say is that's my opportunity to get a wash on, to do something, to send that email, whatever it might be. Um, and instead, what we need to do is actually go in and reward that behavior. We need to go in and say, guys, really liking what you're doing here, the way that you're playing together and maybe give a sweet or give a treat or whatever it might be to recognize. And what you're doing in that is essentially catching them being good. And this is crucially important to the attention economy is I will associate attention with what you tell me. So if you're saying the only thing that gets my attention is you hitting your brother, shouting, running away, whatever it might be, well, then I will do more of that because that's the thing that I'm guaranteed your attention of. It's a learned behaviour. absolutely learned. And from that point of view, as parents, we need to be kind of hyper aware of what messages we're sending the child in terms of attention and in terms of, um, you know, we might, what might happen there rather than seeing that as an opportunity to, um, you know, do your email or empty your wash. It's a learning moment where you can actually have an opportunity to tell your children, I'm recognising this effort. Well done. And what happens then to the child? So it's sitting quietly, enjoying a bit of TV, working on a puzzle, whatever it is. And you come along and say, listen, gosh, you're really doing well there. I really like how you do whatever it is. What happens internally to the child well, when the child they hear is saying, that? The child is saying, you're seeing me. Mm. You saw me doing something here that wasn't a misbehavior. It wasn't me acting out. So I can be seen mm. without being difficult or I can be seen. And oftentimes where we see this is in children, maybe if there's a sibling with uh, an additional need. So if you have oh, a child yes. who mm. might need uh, to go for hospital appointments or do these sorts of things, there's another child who might feel I need to be sick to be seen because I'm not sick. I and so they will oftentimes, you'll find, develop kind of somatic symptoms or pains or whatever, aches or whatever it might be as a means of because they see the currency of illness. You'll see that in children who if one of my children falls and needs a plaster on his knee, mm. his little brother might come up and say, my knee is sore, too. And so the idea is that, yes. that I see care and attention as mm. being the, the currency. So if we have a situation where we over reward certain things like misbehaviors or illnesses or sickness, we almost create a template that that's the avenue to get mom or dad's attention is to be sick, to misbehave or to be difficult. Whereas if we can rewire that and say, getting on with my brother, being good, being kind is the issue. That's the currency that gets me the recognition. Then we're going to really, and again, the idea of incentive works better than mm. sanction. So the idea of incentivizing someone to be and develop the value system that they want, that you want them to, uh, will do better by reward and recognition. And also that value system will sustain the child as well. 100%. And again, mm. the idea that our family values, like we can oftentimes feel that in the world of technology and everything else, we're kind of being taken over by tablets and you know our voice is being drowned out. One of the things we have to remember as parents, our 
family values and our family culture within our home is still far more influential than anything that's coming through from the outside. And we almost have to embrace that and utilize it and use that value system um, because if we ignore it or resign ourselves or become fatalistic that it doesn't exist, we'll actually not be using the one tool that's going to be most effective in shaping our children's value systems, cultures and the way in which they see the world. There's something powerful also about a parent maintaining the role of being a parent, not being a friend, but keeping that position throughout childhood. Yeah, I mean, again, I and I, I think the idea of it's easy to become your child's friend in terms of giving in to what they didn't, what they want. Um, and uh, what I would say, and again, is that being a parent is oftentimes giving your child what they need instead of what they want. And that's a critically difficult thing to do uh, is to make that decision on, I know you want this, but I'm making a decision that you need this. And sometimes I think that can be a hard one to maintain when children are articulate and demanding and troublesome. And sometimes maybe we do give in to the spoiled child in that sense. But knowing why you're doing it and having an awareness of your own boundaries and doing it for the reasons to incentivize good behavior rather than rewarding misbehavior is crucially important to you to regularly check in and make sure that you're doing that as best you can. So if you had a top tip for parents, what would that be? Um, I think the top tip for parents gets back to the idea of giving your children what they need instead of what they want. And I sometimes think when you feel like the unpopular parent, maybe that's a sign that you're getting it right. Um, and sometimes it's believing that and taking reassurance that just because it's unpopular doesn't mean it's wrong. Come an actor, child psychotherapist and author. Thank you for joining us on our podcast series, Growing Paints. Pleasure. Growing Pains, IE Parenting Podcast, in association with Safe Food, helping you make better food choices.